and really we found experiment after experiment, no risk to yield. I found out from his data is that some of the variety responds in a different way in terms of the protein content to the increasing nitrogen rate. So when we're looking at barley profitability, we definitely need to remember the feed side of things. Hello everyone, Jeremy Boychin here coming from my quarantine cave in Calgary and this is the next Growing Point podcast. So like I said, I'm your host, Jeremy Boyshin. Our goal with this podcast is simple, to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. Uh, we hope that the agronomic information from this and future podcasts uh, brings value to you and your farm. So in this episode, we actually have a compilation of conversations with a few different um, researchers in Western Canada. So these recordings were done at the Prairie Cereal Summit in December of 2019. We had a poster session. Uh, so these conversations are with three of, of the poster session um, presenters that we had there. The first one is Dr. Brian Barris, who is an AASE researcher working out of Lethbridge, Alberta. Uh, he uh, discusses his research on ultra-early seeding management and how that may work in Western Canada. The next is Dr. Hiroshi Kubota, an AAFC researcher out of Lacombe, Alberta. Uh, I talked with him about nitrogen rates on different malt varieties uh, and how those varieties respond in terms of yield and quality. The last one is Laurel Thompson. She's a crop research scientist out of Lakeland College. Uh, she discusses her research on managing malt genetics for feed and use. So can we make better use of these malt genetics um, to potentially target that for actually feed end use rather than just malt end use um, and then missing that opportunity on the feed side. Is, is, is there profitability in that type of management? Um, so these are the three uh, researchers that we talked to on this podcast. It's very interesting, um, so, so I hope you guys enjoy it. All right, here we go. All right, we are here at PCS with Brian Barris. Uh, Brian, how are you doing today? Doing well, Jeremy. Doing well. How about you? I feel like we're podcast buddies now. We've done this a few <laughs> times, so uh, looking forward to another one. So we're, we're looking at your poster board here, um, and you're talking about ultra-early seeding. So maybe give us a, a breakdown of what your research is. Well, it, it was an idea that was inspired by a trip down to Montana um, several years ago. And it was one of those springs in southern Alberta and northern Montana where we had um, an opportunity to get into the field early. And that's what was going on in Montana. And it, and it wasn't a super diverse cropping system back then, mainly wheat fowl area I was driving through. But those guys were in late March already in the field. And I thought, you know, that might be an interesting concept to start building on um, to see where we could take that in in a southern Alberta and even a, a, an Alberta, Saskatchewan kind of agroecozone um, sort of area. So, so what is specifically ultra-early seeding? How would you define that? Well, <clears throat> the idea kind of comes from a deviation from sort of a standard practice now where it's more based on calendar dates. And, it, and a lot of those dates is, is, you know, driven, or at least historically was driven by, I must be in by, for example, May 10th down south to meet crop insurance deadlines. And so a lot of it was driven less about biology and optimizing production than it was about 
you know, meeting, you know, sort of some economic realities around crop insurance where um, I started thinking, you know, um, what if we did away with that and started a prescriptive approach where we sort of use the soil temperature as a trigger and not just that, but then challenge sort of the conventional wisdom around, you know, while the soil should be, and there's all sorts of numbers out there, the top five centimeters or two inches should be like 10 degrees C or as high as 20 degrees C for germination. So it's about the germination and not so much about, well, what's the risk if you go in at zero? And so no one had really done that before. And so that's what we started conceptualizing and then uh, testing a hypothesis built around that. And we, we ran experiments, you know, as far south as Lethbridge, but then as far north as Dawson Creek, um, into Saskatchewan, um, areas around Saskatoon, Scott, Swift Current, and, you know, Edmonton as well. So what kind of information did you find from this research? What, what major findings? Well, I think, I think the interesting thing was um, across all of them, I think we we're up to like... Um, you know, 32 site years now or something like that. Or, and, and, and really, we found experiment after experiment, no risk to yield. So we're, so we're going in very, very early, and, and we're not experiencing any risk to yield at all. But we're getting those benefits that come from being in that early, which, you know, a year like this really underscores, and that's being out of the field early. Um, so no risk to yield. In fact, the reality was some of the situations, depending on the system used, built around that, right? Because that's just one feature of what should be a multi-feature, multi-layer um, approach to your agronomic system is that you could actually cause a yield drag if you went in later than after the soil warms to beyond, you know, two to five degrees. Or, and in fact, zero was was showing very very little risk as well. So I think we're we've kind of broken some some mythology around you know safe practices or what is a safe practice. And I think part of that is 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 also some of the work we've done with seed treatments, where the abiotic stress resistance you get from a seed treatment is probably and we haven't tested it so separately, but I think you're getting you know some buffering with that as well. So ultra early seeding, it sounds like we're in the range of somewhere, you know, zero to, to maybe four or five degrees Celsius seeding at that soil temperature. Well, for me, if it was my farm, as soon as as soon as the first time I monitor and, and see two degrees, I'm in the field from from what we've seen from from our experiments. And I think we're into the sixth experiment now, and it, it just keeps showing the same thing over and over again. And and you know, to keep it real, it's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to do it at every site at every year. But when the opportunity is there, whether it's Lethbridge, Alberta, or Dawson Creek, um, we've definitively shown that um, there's no risk to yield starting at two degrees. And I wouldn't even be, if, you know, if the, unless the ground's frozen solid, I'd probably even start at zero from what we've seen. The risk at zero if the ground's frozen, if you've got, say, a knife opener, is you're going to rip up some pretty big aggregates when you're doing it, and that's not a good thing. But we've, we observed that one site year out of the site years we've done and the rest of the time it's even at zero it's been good to go so if i'm a producer thinking about doing this wanting to to move some of my management and, and work early on in the season are there other agronomic factors that i can should consider seeding rates variety selection seed treatment yeah. stuff like that <clears throat> so so the other layer to this or the other feature of this study was we there are cold tolerant lines that have been developed by uh different breeding programs dr rob graf was part of our team 
Dr. Curtis Posniak has some, and a lot of it was started back with Dr. Brian Fowler. So we were sort of looking to see if there was a genotype feature around, you know, resistance to that cold soil that, that would be better than conventional varieties. And the reality is, and probably because it's a spring system, we're not planting in the fall, like a dormancy sort of system. We're not really seeing a benefit from those, at least the ones we looked at. So the conventional variety we used in all of this was just Stettler, and it did just fine, and probably because it's a function of the fact that we're breeding and probably semi-selecting for that sort of hardiness given you know we're in the northern latitudes where we're making our selections and so on. But yeah, this, this sort of lays on top of the foundations we've sort of preached from previous agronomic studies around, you know, nice high seeding rate of... 400 to 450 seeds per square foot or just per square meter or 40 to 45 seeds per square foot um, definitely a dual seed treatment that's fungicide and insecticide because we know you know neonics have been demonized a little bit but the fact is that as a seed treatment they are extremely effective and should be combined with uh, the fungicide as well not again not for that biotic resistance that we we commonly think of but it's actually what we know to happen from the abiotic resistance side so good agronomic sound system on top of like now a strategy of going in early using um, soil temp as a er, cold soil temp as a trigger to start is this something i should start with maybe a, a quarter section or you sound pretty confident how how, how much if i'm starting how many <laughs> acres do you think is reasonable to, to kind of give it a go well, i mean everybody knows the year we had this year this spring where we were able to go in early in a lot of areas in Alberta and Saskatchewan. I was getting calls from guys um, or DMs on Twitter, you know, should I go? Nobody else around me is going, but I, I saw what you did, and I think I'm going to go. Should I go? And I was like, yeah, go give it a try. And then of all the years, we get this crazy weather where once that wheat was up, it, you know, sustained upwards of minus eight. Um, and I thought, my God, I'm going to be strung up here from from having a crazy idea like this but the reality was even in that situation was kind of like worst case it those guys fared um excellent they uh you know you had a bit of leaf burn or browning off of the tips of that leaf but no no impediment at all to yield so um sure if you if it's, it's that comfort zone of the producer to scale it up if they like um but certainly start thinking about scaling it up and and there's guys now starting last year that have done it on a on a broader scale so um it's out there and it's working awesome well thank you brian i appreciate the time i look forward to uh seeing how this idea grows sounds good thanks jeremy i am here with dr hiroshi kubota and we are at pcs yep. and we are getting ready for the poster session Hiroshi, introduce yourself, tell everyone where you work and what your research is about. Okay, uh, my name is Hiroshi Kubota and uh, I'm a new rehired research scientist at Ag Canada in Lacombe. And I'm presenting the poster that has been done my predecessor. So this is not my research, but really interesting, so. So what's, what's the research on Hiroshi? Um, Okay, the title is Yield and Promoting Grain Quality Response of Multi-Vary Variety to Increasing Nitrogen Rate in Western Canada. So basically, my predecessor started this research asking like two questions to answer. Like first one would be uh, like 
many producers, barley producers, they have a difficulty to get the molting quality. So he wants to solve by using nitrogen uh, practices. And the other one, wheat, canola, berries, these are like kind of main crops in Alberta. And wheat, canola, in last 30, 13 years, they have been increased the yield, like 2.7 and 3.7 percent per uh, unit area. But for the molting, uh, sorry, not molting, like a barley, they just increased 1 percent in last 30 years. So he thought that it is a gap of the agronomy practices or genetics. But actually, what he's seeing that there has been so many new molting varieties, and he could test how these varieties respond to uh, increasing nitrogen rate, but still to get uh, good molting quality. So this is what it's about, this so, study. So I'm looking at 25 kilograms per hectare, 50, 75, 100 with varieties, Kindersley, Cerveza, Voyager, Synergy, and yep. Metcalf. So what, what results did we find with this? Looks like we've got yield, uh, kernel protein, and kernel plumpness. So basically, like, uh, most important things is yield and also the, the protein content in the grain in order to be uh, accepted as a good, mo good molting quality. And in terms of yield, as everybody knows that increasing nitrogen rate, usually a variety responds really quick and increase the yield. And that's all no everybody knows. And actually, this uh, project showed that the same Result. So basically, increasing yield, uh, sorry, increasing nitrogen rate, increasing yield. And in terms of protein, it is a kind of similar story that increasing nitrogen rate, increasing protein content. But uh, what he thought and what I found out from his data is that some of the variety responds in a different way in terms of the protein content to the increasing nitrogen rate. So for example, Synergy and Voyager, their uh, protein content at 100 kilograms per hectare are still in a good limit of uh, protein content, which is less than 12.5%. Uh, so is that is that 100 kilograms per hectare total, including soil, or yes. is that... Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then kernel, kernel plumpness? Kernel um, uh, plumpness is kind of opposite trend, so increasing nitrogen rate decreases the uh, plump kernels, but still cultivar synergy and Voyager, they keep good plump kernel percentage. So like these two varieties could be an advantage for producers who are looking for to get a good yield 
and uh, low protein with high nitrogen rate. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from this is depending on what variety you're utilizing, yep. you can increase that nitrogen rate to 100 kilograms per right. hectare with a, while minimizing your risk to high protein above 12.5 with yeah. specific varieties. In this one, Synergy and Voyager, where, where Kindersley, Cerveza, and, and Metcalf, Metcalf look like they were above that 12.5%. Right. Yeah. Um, and this looks like it comes back, comes back to that genetics by environment kind of thing where yes. we need to consider our genetics right. when we're making management decisions. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that we, I think it, it is important is that our research project try to cover the more, like a major molting growing area so that this uh, result can be uh, applicable to like many barley producers. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us, Roshi. Is there anything else you want to add about this? Okay. So, I think um, as a research scientist, I can provide some evidence of from the science side, but obviously, like producers, I mean the molting body industry has to coordinate uh, with all stakeholders, such as producers, maltsters, and consumers. So these varieties perform really well, like Synergy and Voyager performed well, but we have to consider about the preference and the demand of the industries. So yeah, that's the all about of this study, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thank you, Hiroshi. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. All right, we are here with Laurel Thompson. So maybe for those who don't know you, can you introduce yourself and let them know where you work? Sure, I'm Laurel Thompson. I'm crop research scientist at Lakeland College in Vermilion, Alberta. Awesome, so we are looking at your poster here at PCS and it is managing molten genetics um, for feed and market end use. So can you tell us a little bit about your research? Sure, so the whole premise behind this uh, project is looking at how we can increase um, feed barley yields and profitability on farm because we need to remember that roughly half of the insured seeded acres in Alberta every year are seeded to feed. So when we're looking at barley profitability, we definitely need to remember the feed side of things and um, so past research has shown um, varietal improvement has maybe been slower uh, for barley than for other major crops and so we're looking at ways that we can look at different varieties to increase feed barley profitability. So one of those avenues could be malt varieties, so malt genetics. So the question becomes, can we manage malt varieties to increase barley profitability and, and manage them for um, feed market end use, so that would be managing them with a higher nitrogen rate and, per, and potentially a plant growth regulator. And I think growers need to know and farmers need to know um, maturity of these malt varieties when we're growing them under higher nitrogen um, lodging. Um, so th these are the things aside from yield that we're measuring. Yeah. So what did we find out on your research? It looks like we have quite a few varieties in here, quite a few nitrogen rates, um, and we have uh, uh, modus and non-modus, what did we find between all these varieties and, and these treatments? 
Right, so we're, we've completed year one of the two-year project, so there'll be six site years in total at the end of the experiment. So th we have three, years of three site, user, site years of data. Maybe I'll repeat that. We have three site years of data uh, so far. And what we're finding is, um, so we have CDC Austinson feed, so that's really benchmark feed variety for producers, um, grower familiarity, top acre feed variety in the province, um, and testing it alongside with CDC Copeland, obviously benchmark malt variety, uh, registered 20 years ago, and two new malts, AAC Synergy, uh, which is gaining in acres, registered in 2012, and CDC Bow, which is a new malt registered in 2015. Very good lodging resistance ratings, that's why it was included. Um, so in the first year, we had a little bit surprising results. Um, we had maybe expected that AAC Synergy, given some on-farm and other anecdotal evidence, maybe AAC Synergy would uh, be able to challenge CDC Austinson uh, feed and yields and what we did find in this first year at Vermilion, Barhead and Lethbridge um, was that CDC Austinson was the highest yielding uh, at all three sites and at two of the sites all three malts yielded the same. So we've got quite a spread in registration year between Copeland registered in 1999 and CDC Bow registered in 2015 and what we found at Barhead and Vermilion all the malts yielded the same and in fact at um, Lethbridge was the only site where a malt yielded the same as Austinson so CDC Copeland was able to yield the same as Austinson but a little bit counter to what we would have expected we may have expected one of the newer malts to be rivaling Austinson so <clears throat> a little bit surprising for us but we're taking the data as we're seeing it um, and as we go into next year's growing conditions and different environmental conditions we'll be seeing how the varieties perform under different conditions as well. Do you, do you think there's anything special about Lethbridge that provoked that or do, do you have any estimations of what happened there? Um, well the Lethbridge site was irrigated um, but it was also you know a drought condition in the background of that so despite the irrigated con conditions there um, they really kind of came out uh, maybe as a normal year for for a dryland cropping system with normal rainfall so um, they didn't get the lodging pressure um, that Vermilion and Barhead received and uh, you know um, so maybe that may have played into um, Copeland's performance there um, other than that that's that's kind of my thoughts there so I'm looking at, at lodging uh, information is this, is this oh this is grain yield okay with with uh, no PGR and MODIS and there's no difference there as well it's looking like well um, so with MODIS um, we did see one site uh, at one of the three sites had a yield bump when when we applied MODIS and that was the vermilion site um, we had a seven bushel yield increase with MODIS and I'll highlight that there was lodging at vermilion but it wasn't severe lodging by any means whereas at Barhead we had severe lodging pressure Lethbridge we had no lodging pressure and at both of those two sites Barhead and Lethbridge there was no yield effect so that's making it difficult for agronomists and research scientists and farmers to try to predict you know lodging pressure in this first year of the study didn't predict whether there would be a yield benefit of the PGR right. um, so that was a kind of consistent with previous research with gibberell and inhibiting um, PGRs that the they're difficult to predict uh, their consistency wouldn't be on par with other crop 
protection products like a herbicide. So um, as we get farther into the research story and uh, alongside growers as these products become registered and come to market, um, observing, gathering data and trying to um, predict for, for the industry really what the performance will be of these products. Yeah, the more I see of research in, in the, the lodging um, products, they seem to be very variable in a response by variety, by year, by, by moisture level. All of those things seem to play a huge role. And I think we need to remember that lodging itself is very variable as well. So, um, you know, when we're talking about challenges of, of researching uh, in this area, even having, uh, when you're studying... Um, an abiotic factor that's threatening crop yields, such as lodging. Lodging is very unpredictable, so um, it's not a huge surprise to me that the performance of the products are not extremely predictable, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're not a valuable tool uh, or fit for growers uh, or a risk management tool, so um, certainly are seeing uh, the value. And I think pairing small plot research uh, when we're looking at lodging along with farmer experience on farm in strip trials on field field scale farm trials is really valuable for lodging because the patterns spatially within the field can kind of tell a story as well. So knowing that this is the first year of of two years um, for research, um, what can we maybe tell producers about this information, albeit cautiously, because there's still more information that needs to come? For, certainly. So kind of trends that we're kind of pulling out from year one, um, in terms of the PGR, while we're on the subject for MODIS, we are kind of generally saying that its performance was inconsistent, but um, in Vermilion, we did see an improvement in standability with MODIS applied. Uh, small imp- improvement where there was lodging present in plots so um, it did help it didn't eliminate lodging and sometimes you know that we didn't always see that reduction in every plot but overall when we ran the stats in the experiment we were seeing that slight reduction in lodging now at Barhead where there's severe lodging we didn't see that effective modus so where the lodging pressure was fairly huge um, higher nitrate, soil nitrate there, higher organic matter, more rainfall. Um, We weren't seeing modus rescue lodging there. Um, So kind of cautious take on PGRs. They are helpful, but they may not solve the lodging problem. They may be one tool in the toolbox. Um, And then in terms of variety performance, you know, we can say a third of the time we had a malt variety that was able to yield on par with our feed. So at one of the three sites. So I'm really interested to see how these varieties perform next year. Um, and maybe a bit concerning for growers is we we weren't seeing the new malt genetics consistency consistently out yielding the old malt genetics, but this is why it's so important to have multiple site years. Um, so I will stress this is year one. Varieties perform differently in different years. So as we build a larger data set, um, we'll be able to have some more concrete um, information for um, farmers to base decisions off of. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Laurel. This has been awesome. Is there anything else you want to add before we, uh, before I let you get back to it? Oh, I just think this is a really neat project um, in terms of who funded it. Um, We have funders from uh, Producer Commission, Alberta Barley, so the 
barley producers, uh, all the way through the value chain of a chem company, Syngenta, Secan being the seed co- a seed company, and down to the end user of Canada Malt. And I guess one other important thing that I do want to add is we are doing malt quality analysis um, of uh, modus versus non-modus treated uh, malt barley varieties, and uh, Canada Malt's doing that testing internally, and I think that will be important um, as MODIS hopefully becomes registered and on label in the future, we still need to have end user malt house buy-in. And um, the fact that Canada Malt is involved in this project and testing these samples, um, I think is a, on the right track for giving our producers more tools. Yeah, it will help it move quickly if it is a benefit in the future. So, yeah. hey, awesome, thank okay. you. I hope you all enjoyed that podcast and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, take a second, rate and review for us. Um, Share it with your friends if you have any. Just pass it along to anyone who will listen. Uh, This helps us grow and get our message out there. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to Alberta Wheat or albertabarley.com and sign up to our mailing list. Um, We'll send you tons of information, agronomic timely information that we're developing through articles, interviews, and through this newsletter. Uh, So head over there, sign up, and we'll see you next time.